0: I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. And you're listening to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping drinks businesses grow and thrive. Whether you're in wine, beer, or spirits, or the non-alcoholic drink space, in functional beverages, or seltzers and sodas, we've got you covered. We
1: take a holistic approach to drinks, looking at new business opportunities and the products and categories that get customers excited. This season, we're doing a deep dive on millennial and Gen Z audiences and their drinking behaviors. We even commissioned our Own research on the topic, and we'll be talking with experts all season long. Thanks for joining us, and let's dive in.
0: Welcome to a very important episode of Business of Drinks. Normally, in this podcast, we go out and interview top industry experts on whatever the topic is that we're exploring. But this time, for this episode, we have done something truly exciting and different which we will get to in a minute, and we're so excited to share it. But first, <laughs> before we get into that, Felicity, you just wrote this article, and it went viral. Um, Tell me, what was it about? Thanks, Erica.
1: Yes, I have been following the recommendations about alcohol that are being proposed by the World Health Organization. And recently, I wrote an article for Mining as Trade Magazine in Europe that got picked up by a lot of other writers and outlets, and it had so many views, it nearly crashed the website. Basically, The Who has come out and said, there is no safe amount of alcohol, which we knew about. But what they want to do is they want governments to begin treating it like tobacco. So if you speak to trade officials, which I did last week, they're privately calling it the denormalization project, meaning that whatever the WHO wants to do is not to ban alcohol, but to denormalize it. So in practice, this would mean having fewer and fewer places where alcohol could be bought and sold so that the consumption of alcohol in public will become rare and eventually socially unacceptable. So how would this work? One of the proposals is to ban the sale of alcohol in places where minors might be present, which sounds reasonable until you realize they're talking about sporting and cultural events. So this would mean that you couldn't buy beer when you go to the football, you can't have a glass of wine if you go to the theater and uh, you want to enjoy yourself at interval. Now, this is already being debated at the level of the EU. And if this is adopted in the EU, this will spread elsewhere fairly rapidly. So in this season, we're talking about people drinking less. But if these measures are adopted, not drinking at all might become the norm.
0: And the WHO in this case is not a band. It is the World Health Organization.
1: Definitely not a band. There's no toe tapping.
0: I mean, look, you you can feel, really, the shutters, reverberating around the alcohol industry with that last statement so if the who measures were enacted it would cause a massive cascade of consequences around the industry it would impact not only wine beer and spirits producers but importers distributors hospitality restaurants bars and retailers etc like everyone so we'll be watching this closely and you know, let's let's be real here. Health concerns are already having a major impact on the alcohol market. And really that's expected to accelerate, especially now with the availability of other intoxicants like cannabis drinks, which we'll be discussing later in the season. I just tried some of those and really enjoyed them. And health is not the only thing that's impacting the drinking behavior of younger audiences. Now, getting back to the thing we want to share, We are chomping at the bit. We have spent so much time on this and the exciting thing. Yes. So just as a preview, we wanted to find out more about Millennial and Gen Z audiences. So we decided to take matters into our own hands. Felicity, tell us more.
1: Why, thank you, Erica. I will. Okay. So the question we're asking this season is, where have all the younger drinkers gone? And to prepare for this, we spent several months doing a deep dive into the research. Now we got a bunch of answers about why the consumption of alcohol is falling some of which we've talked about health concerns, fears about social media reputation, to COVID preventing people from going out and seeing one another, and all of these are important. But they didn't answer some key questions, like when people drink, whether they're drinking non-alcohol or alcoholic drinks. Why do they choose what they do? What influence their choices? Do they have different perceptions around different types of alcohol? So we decided to find out for ourselves, and we went big. Oh yeah, we commissioned our own research. We've surveyed more than thirteen hundred. Gen Zs and Millennials, a Gen Z of legal drinking age from across the U.S., asking them everything we wanted to know. Erica, could you give the background to what we did and why? Sure.
0: So so the market researcher, Roger Brooks, he approached us after season one. His background really is um, doing research for the likes of YouTube, LinkedIn, and YouGov. And he saw that there was a lot of opportunity around delving into drinking behaviors, mostly because there hasn't been much research done on this topic. And so we said, Millennials and Gen Z, please, we would like to do this. So some of the questions we wanted to know, you know, how are Millennials and Gen Zs intersecting with alcohol you know, what are they drinking when they're not drinking alcohol? Why do they choose one type of beverage over another? Uh, Who or what is influencing their purchase and consumption behavior, etc., etc. And then we even did a special section specific to wine where we asked how much are younger audiences willing to spend on wine? Which regions, which styles of wine do they prefer? You know, how has COVID changed wine consumption for these audiences? That's just a few of the questions. There were so many. This report is more than 90 pages long. So there <laughs> it's big and we have to proofread it. Yeah. So there is a lot to dive into. Um, But anyway, you know, we came up with all these questions. We launched the survey. 1300 people took it from the millennial and Gen Z audiences. And, you know, I think one of the cool things about this report is that uh, for people who download it, there is a really awesome layer of data in there where we capture comments. So this gave some very interesting texture and context to the report that you don't see in a lot of reports. But I think really the thing that makes this report so interesting to me is that there's so much actionable insights in there for really all players in the beverage space from alcohol brands to soft drink companies to regional wine bodies to importers and distributors. You know, anyone who is looking to understand millennial and Gen Z drink behavior and to sell more effectively. To these audiences will find something of value in there. Um, so, you know, just one use case, like let's take, let's take wine for an example. There are some very strong insights around drinking occasions where wine can win over other beverages, and then also how to position wine effectively against other beverages, and then layer on top of that, these findings about how strong social media and search engines are in driving discovery and purchase and data about how younger audiences don't care about critic scores or wine publications, and they're also not using wine apps. So, you know, take all of these sorts of findings together, and you've got a pretty robust roadmap for media planning, promotion, advertising for really any business. That's probably just, you know, one of a, a several use cases I could come up with. But uh, Felicity, you know, you've been uh, delving into this report so deeply. Tell me what your impressions are.
1: Well, first of all, uh, you know, it's, it's such an interesting report with so much depth. As a wine journalist, I wasn't happy about some of the findings, I must admit. But what I did like was there were some answers in there that dovetail nicely with what's already known about drinking preferences across different age groups. So for example, the younger you are, the more that sugar plays a role in your choices. Unless you come from a background where you're encouraged to be adventurous when eating and drinking, most young people prefer sweet drinks and the study reflects that. Now that to me was a very reassuring finding because it shows that our study was capturing real world data. If the study had come back with the news, that all the people we surveyed liked complex, unusual drinks, I wouldn't have trusted it. What I found really striking though was the way the study showed the role played by what I guess you could call the community of drinking. People generally don't drink alone, but they drink with other people and the results capture how peer groups and relatives influence the choice of drinks and on which occasions. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to consider. And speaking of occasions, I was really interested to see that while millennials still have a strong sense of this drink goes with this occasion, that's really breaking down with Gen Z. It would be absolutely fascinating to do this study in five years to see whether these behaviours still hold or whether Gen Z becomes more conventional and like the millennials in their choices of what to drink on what occasions. Anyway, I don't want to give away too much because we're about to discuss it in person with Roger, the researcher, where we'll dive into the findings in more detail.
0: So for now, it's time to dive in and talk to Roger. So let's do it. And now a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay.
1: At the business of drinks, we talk about building successful brands, but there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience.
0: It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20 step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol
1: sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant.
0: Enter ExcelPay from a one-tap compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data. ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account.
1: That's a w c e l p a y dot i o
0: forward slash b o d. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Great to be here and join you guys.
0: So let's start off by finding out what was it that got you interested in exploring the topic of alcohol.
2: Well, I kind of fell backwards into it because my passion, as you know, is wine, but wine competes in a broader category. There are so many brands that they really don't compete with each other that much. They really compete with craft beers and, as we're finding in this study, major beer brands and wine and hard seltzer. That's a primary competitive set. So that's kind of how I back my way into interested in alcohol is that it's inextricably tied with wine.
0: Yeah, we have so many things to cover. But Felicity, why don't you talk us through some of the main things that you and I noticed uh, in this report as some of the big takeaways, and then we can talk about the methodology and get into some other points of discussion. So Felicity, top five takeaways.
1: Okay, so this is quite an in-depth report. It actually takes quite a long time to get through it, and there's lots of findings which are not You wouldn't call them counterintuitive, but they're not quite in line with what many people in the wine industry or the wine and spirits industry think about these groups. So to me, five particular things Jumped out, and the very first one was the role that soft drinks are playing in the lives of people who are uh, Gen Zs and Millennials. Gen Z, particularly, there's a huge interest in soft drink. And what I found really interesting was how many people said that they took soft drinks to all sorts of occasions, including out to dinner, um, to places that maybe older people may have found inappropriate to take soft drinks along. But these are these are really this is a really really important category, and and maybe is helping to displace alcohol. In many ways. The second one was the role of flavor. Now, we've heard over and over from people we've interviewed on the business of drinks that flavor is not the most important thing in market success, that it's things like occasions and whether you can find a thing and how, you know, whether it fits people's lifestyle and self image and so on is really important. But over and over, people in the report said it was flavor that was important to them. And quite a lot of people reported that they had taken, say, a bottle of wine because they'd They, you know, heard good things about it or they'd seen advertising or they'd seen it on Instagram and they were disappointed that it didn't uh, light them up the way they thought it was going to. The third thing is the role of family and friends, how much the people around you really shape what you drink. And it, it brings us to number four, which is the role of occasion, that it's really the occasion that dictates what you drink rather than the other way around. Now, this is something that people have always been really aware of, I think, in the in the alcohol beverage industry. But the, the combination of how family and friends and the place is really, is really determining how you'll drink. And I think a lot of people think that it's, you know, your choice of beverage is very much an individual choice and if you can just convince the individual to choose differently that we'll all be happy and making lots of money and in fact it's it's the role of the context which really needs to be looked at and the last thing which was really really surprising was the role of digital so things like wine apps like Vivino again which many people in the industry would think are highly important and not that important to Gen Z but wine subscriptions are there was a lot of interest in in buying digitally yeah
0: I mean there's there's so much for us to dive into here, but I think it's really important for uh, our listeners to understand really the background and the methodology here so that we can sort of frame uh, what these findings actually mean. So Roger, can you talk us through the methodology of this report?
2: Yeah, the methodology is pretty simple. We uh, recruited well over 600 Gen Zs and over 700 millennials. Um, Importantly, the Gen Zs or LDAs, legal drinking age, Gen Zs. So if we were hypothetically to combine them, they'd be one-fourth of the Gen Z millennial population. But since we wanted to make a comparison, I boosted up the sample to well over 600 for Gen Zs, so over 700 for millennials, so that we can make a very robust comparison. So that's pretty much it. And the qualifications, <laughs> pretty simple. You had to drink something. So the incidence was quite high. Although, think of the questionnaire in the study as in two parts. The first is beverages. And I think that's where we, we've got some most of our new insights. And then the second part is really devoted to wine. And there are some questions in there that, uh, that we wanted to ask that I haven't seen asked.
1: Can I just jump in and ask you, Roger, how can you be certain that the people that you surveyed are a representative sample of this age group?
2: Well, I'm using a, a leading sample provider, sent. So when I requested the sample, I wanted a representative sample of Gen Zs in this particular age group, millennials in this particular age group, and uh, that's essentially what I got.
0: Yeah, and looking at the uh, state-by-state breakup, we can see that we have a really robust sampling of people from pretty much every state in the country. So tell us, Roger, what were some of the biggest differences that you saw between millennials and Gen Z? I think
2: uh, one of the things that stands out for me is the major role that major beer brands play with millennials, not just in terms of their favorite drinks, but for the multiplicity of occasions that they engage in. Uh, the other thing is that very, you saw very few areas where Gen Z's said something more, that it's more important. The only exception was eco friendly, sustainable, organic. Now, while that's relatively low in the pecking order in terms of as a purchase driver, more statistically, significantly more Gen Zs mentioned that. About a third said that was extremely or very important. About a quarter of millennials said that. So, not something we should ignore, but I think it's, <laughs> we just need to make sure that we understand that in the context of uh, purchase drivers. The other thing that caught my attention is that, uh, Gen Z's seem to be a little bit more interested in wine. (laughs) If you look at like the indulgence, if I remember correctly, the indulgent treat, wine's right up there. And the other thing I would say is that the degree, for example, if you look at favorite beverages, you know, while wine, craft beer, major beer brands, spirits are all up there, there's more, millennials uh, indicate that more often than Gen Z's. From an occasion standpoint, you see that they say that they they do that more, or like major beer brands, let's say, at a bar or a restaurant, they they, you millennials are more engaged. I guess is another way of putting it with beverages.
0: Yeah, I mean, I noticed that. So for all of the biggest categories, millennials were the, uh, you know, the bigger consumption, bigger frequency drinkers. So with wine, with the big beer brands, with spirits, with craft beer. And I think the biggest, you know, like going back to what Felicity tipped to, that top takeaway, you know, it's really soft drinks for the win here. So some 73% of Gen Z and 75% of millennials say that they drink soft drinks at least two to three times a month. And so that was far and wide the leader above all other categories like the wine, beer, spirits, hard seltzers. And after soft drinks, the category with the most consumption frequency was wine with 44% of millennials and 40% of gen z saying that they drink that category at least 2 to 3 times a month and then that was followed by big beer so 44% of millennials and 32% of gen z said that they drink that category at least 2 to 3 times a month and shortly thereafter by spirits so i think you know soft drinks soft drinks all the way here and in some respects it makes sense so Soft drinks are consumed more parts of the day, you know, you can drink soft drinks at lunch, afternoon breaks, etc. On one hand, it really got me thinking about the huge explosion in the variety of soft drinks out there. So we, in the in our survey, we said soft drinks, but you know, looking at a variety of different definitions out there, that's really any water-based flavored drink, uh, you know, usually but not necessarily carbonated, typically adding some sort of flavors. So it's kind of in the you know realm of what people perceived as what a soft drink was, but it really seemed like that was a category for sort of all flavored. Beverages could be Coke, could be a better for you soda, you know, like Olipop or the way I have always defined it is essentially what you can get in a convenience store case. And that could be anything from like Gatorade to iced tea to coconut water. And, you know, as we all know, those of us who are in the U.S., you know, you walk into a grocery store or a convenience store and there are. Hundreds of products staring at you from those display shelves. So I think really that that soft drink category has exploded and has really expanded, you know, so far into the realm of where previously alcoholic drinks were. And Felicity, like you mentioned, people are bringing these drinks to the dinner table.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I was talking to somebody this morning about about this and, and he made the point that, you know, uh, at the moment, people who work in beverage alcohol, particularly wine, are very, very worried about the decline in consumption of alcohol. But actually, it looks like the overall consumption of beverages has gone up. It's just that the array of choices is unbelievable. And so it's very hard to get traction, you know, with, with any liquid among this group because they have such choice available to them. But I, I want to come to the role of flavour. So the role of flavor came out quite strongly in the report but I wondered how much it was it it was so uh, starkly different to what people in the industry had told us about they they recognized that flavor is important but they were saying you know that there are other attributes that that make things successful and I wondered how much people were talking about flavor in the same way that when you talk to people about their diet um, they self-reported people, what am I trying to say? When you report yourself and why you choose things, you often tell a story that might not be true. And I'm wondering if people say, I want the flavour, but when, what they're actually choosing is really based on ubiquity, that that what was in front of them is uh, is is what they have and that their flavor is being sort of trained by whatever is most available. Because one of the things that came out of the report was um, access to things. If you had access to things, you seem to like it. I'm not sure if I'm being very clear about that, Roger, but how much do you think flavor really does play a role versus this thing is around and I'm used to drinking it, therefore that's the flavor I like?
2: Flavor is sort of a gimme. It's kind of the cost of entry, if you will. So not surprising to see that rated very high, but what we also saw rated very important is easy to find and buy, both for beverage and for wine. There again, I see that kind of as a cost of entry. I mean, if you can't find something easily buy it, though. you move on to something else. And we know that millennials in, in Gen Z trade off in different categories much more than, say, uh, the boomers, who are tend to be more loyal to one kind of beverage versus another, let's say, wine. So those kinds of things really didn't surprise me that much. I think one of the things that surprised me a little bit was if you look at brand, at wine, brand is not that important, relatively speaking. And my common sense is that you've got thousands of them. But by the same token, if you really want to brand your wine, uh, as we mentioned in the report, from an implication standpoint, really talk to the attributes of, of your wine from a category standpoint. So for example, if you're a winemaker, where it's, if the Gen Z's and millennials are both saying it's it's a great uh, beverage to relax and have at home. Any home occasion, wine is really a popular thing. The other, another thing we found out, for example, with wine is how, how do you find out about wine to buy? I think the, the second or third most important offline was in restaurants. You know, so in terms of on-premise, Marketing uh, you know that has some implications
0: definitely well let's let's talk a little bit about wine and in particular with the role of family and friends so uh, in this section that really drilled into behaviors around uh, wine. You know, it was interesting to me that for wine specifically, more so than with other types of beverages, the recommendations of friends and family were hugely important. With some 47% of Gen Z and 50% of millennials reporting that those recommendations are extremely or very important to helping them decide what to buy. And so, you know, in comparison, these these friend and family recommendations were more important than critic scores or ratings or wine apps in, in assisting their purchases. So was that something that you were surprised about?
2: Not really, because wine is such a complicated category. And when we asked the question about why aren't you drinking more, for example, or why don't you even try it if you're willing, one of the things that came out in the verbatims in the comments was, I'm overwhelmed. It's just such a confusing category. And some had said, well, I tried it and I just didn't really like it. So they're put in a position where uh, even people who know a lot about wine, you know, the more you learn about wine, the more you know that you don't know. Friends and family recommendations, I think that eases the pathway to trial. If you're talking with somebody who said, hey, I had this great rosé the other day, done deal.
1: Yeah, so so as a, a Gen X, um, you know, I, I entered uh, getting interested in wine in the late 90s and there was this great big panic about how we're going to get Gen Xs interested in wine. But the pathway in those days was really critic scores. The critic scores were really, really important um, and they worked. Everybody, you know, hates scores, but they really did work as a guide to, you know, getting people to trust something. But this generation are not interested in scores whatsoever. They don't care. So I think that's a really... Interesting challenge now for how do people reach the family and friends who are going to make the recommendations? You know, you can't just have a score anymore; it's not going to work. It's it's a much more challenging thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that that goes to something we haven't yet touched on, and we didn't really hit on in the first episode. But I think that is really important, which is around demographics. So, you know, I was looking at some of the analysis around the Gallup poll, and they were saying, you know. They believe that one of the main reasons for the decline in drinking among young adults is because of the much greater diversification around racial and ethnic makeup in the United States. And so essentially, the percentage of 18 to 34 year olds who are Black, Hispanic, Asian, or other racial minorities has nearly doubled over the past two decades. Now, uh, so it made up just under a third of the age group in the 20, uh, 2003 poll but is about half of that age group today. So non-white Americans have persistently been less likely than white Americans to use alcohol. And we've seen that, you know, in all age groups in this Gallup polling. And what's interesting to me about that is, like, that makes so much sense. If Gen Z and millennials are looking to friends and family, many of those people who are older— right, that may not ever have started drinking wine, you know, or other alcoholic beverages to begin with, then that starts to make sense as to why, you know, along with health and probably, you know, marijuana, other reasons that people are not turning on to alcohol as quickly as they did in the past. And it kind of made sense to me about what we're seeing in in this survey.
1: So this is the price of ignoring lots and lots of people. You know, for the last 25 years, I've heard nothing but you know we have to be more inclusive we have to break down the barriers and, and none of that work was done until quite recently and I, I guess from what you're saying now we're seeing the result of it
2: also to pick up on the friends and family remember from a study that uh, social media was a primary online method uh, method for finding a beverage or finding wine well there's the friends part of the family and friends so guess what these people are not just talking to them or texting with them they're online with them in social media so I think that bolsters even further the importance of the family and friends, at least especially the friends part of it, because social media is such an integral part of, of discovery.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just looking at the offline resources. So uh so 40% of 47% of millennials and 41% of Gen Z said that friends and family were their most relied upon resource for off offline. Uh, recommendations. And then behind that were wines tried in a restaurant, recommendations from a wine shop expert, ratings, you know, et cetera, down the line. And it was interesting to me that less than 20% of respondents said that they relied. On ratings from wine publications or experts, which is you know so much lower than I've seen for other groups, um, and fewer than fifteen percent of respondents said that they relied on articles in wine publications. <laughs> so it's you know that these sources of media are not where millennials or Gen Z are going for wine or. You know, presumably other types of drinks recommendations.
1: Yeah, and we should at some point think a bit more about the uh, the level of disappointment that was being expressed by Gen Z particularly, which is, you know, I tried this wine, it was really hyped up on social media and I didn't like the taste. I think, you know, one of the things we should come back to is the role of sugar as well in soft drinks. You know, soft drinks have a very high level of sugar and we've always known that young people's palates take to sugar and that's young men as well as young women. You know, right up until you're in your mid-20s, it's, it's, you know, sugary drinks all the way. So let's talk about the role of occasion and how important occasion is to this as well. What I find really interesting about this is how neatly this dovetails with research about, you know, how you get people to change their eating habits, for example. And one of the most extraordinarily difficult things to do is to get people to change the way they eat because they don't eat alone. They eat alone with family and friends. And so that's what is going to shape your taste. But so there's, there's that, which we've touched on, but there's also the, how are we going to educate people about wine when it's The getting into the occasion, which is going to be the most important thing. So sporting events, cultural events, places where wine usually doesn't exist because it's too expensive for people to put their wine there. I don't have any answer to that. It might be that the future for going to sporting events is RTDs and things in cans. I don't know. Do either of you have a view about about occasions?
2: Soft drinks was in the top three, nine of 10 occasions for Gen Z and seven of 10 for millennials. So the versatility is there. But then you get a lot of variation by occasion, by Gen Z and millennials. So I don't have the chart in front of me, but it's uh, jam-packed with a lot of data and there are some real differences.
1: The other thing is the role of digital, which was really fascinating. So first of all, that the apps and stuff haven't really made great inroads. And I guess that makes sense because you have to be thinking about the thing in the first place to go and download the app. So if you're not even thinking about the thing, then the apps are just going to be irrelevant to you because you're not even thinking about wines. Why would you think about a wine app? Reading the report, I almost felt like the recommendation for wineries should be plastered all over your online shop. We're a real place. You can come and visit us. There's real earth and dirt and vines behind this.
2: Yeah, and I think accessibility is a real key thing there. uh, One of the benefits of the COVID is that you had the introduction of virtual tasting. And I think that's something that Really ought to continue because that is a that is a barrier. Is just the accessibility. Not everybody lives up in Marin like I do. We. And drive to a winery nearby.
1: Yeah, and yet the the positive thing that came out of the report was how many Gen Zs were interested in subscriptions, and uh, and actually ordering online. There's no problem about that whatsoever. That once they get a taste for something, they're very happy to go to digital and just you know send off for it and and explore it that way. So you know maybe maybe you're right. Maybe there's there should be more emphasis on on online tastings, particularly linked to wine clubs and subscriptions and so on. It, maybe influencers need to be taking people on a digital journey rather than just a a wine recommendation. I don't know. What do you think about this, Erica?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we saw social media pop in, uh, in terms of finding out about wine. So I think, you know, that's not just wine companies advertising on different channels. It's also influencers. It's also friends and family. So I think that there is that discoverability aspect that certainly has been enhanced since COVID. I think you see that, you know, so commonly now. I mean, every person that I know that it goes to a winery, they're pretty much posting, you know, a couple different photos in a little slideshow and, you know, one of them in front of the tasting room and another one, you know, in the vines and another of them, you know, sort of like, you know, taking a sample from the tank or what have you. So I think there's this more sort of experiential aspect that has become more and more uh, robust and that people do now have a better sense of uh, being able to go to the actual place without physically being there.
1: Yeah, now that we're talking about it, maybe we need a better sort of integrated strategy the way that online and offline is, is integrated so that they just flow through, you know, one another because I think at the moment they are very distinct Universes and, and maybe everyone should be thinking much more about how they can be integrated with one another.
0: All right. Well, we have talked about some of the things that we think are the biggest takeaways, and now Roger, hop into some of your biggest takeaways.
2: Okay. Well, we I think we've touched on some of them. There, there's there's a fair number. The whole role of soft drinks. I mean, that's just totally stands out in terms of the beverage category. Um, the other big ta- another big takeaway for me was the relative Unimportance of eco-friendly, and we actually said, e.g., sustainability, organic, and also health-related stuff like low or no sugar. But they're relatively unimportant, and uh, when you compare it with easy to find and buy, flavor, you know, good for different occasions, things like that. That was kind of a convention challenger to me. The other thing is, if you look at the question about what kinds of wines are bought, way at the bottom are orange wines. Uh, low alcohol or no alcohol wines, all under 10%. So there's a, so much in the media about everybody and their brothers getting into production of those. That's fine. I, I mean, and, and it is growing. There's no doubt about that. But the current state of nature is that they are way behind. The other thing that grabbed my attention was um, the alternative packaging. While your standard 750 milliliters is still... I think it's like three, two-thirds, three-quarters Gen Z millennials respectively buy in the past year. Wine in a box, four in ten. Wine in a can, one in five. Love to see that for boomers. <laughs> I don't think you'd see anything close to that. The other thing that I've been dying to ask these questions is pre-COVID versus post-COVID. And we can't look at Gen Z because... A lot of them were saying in the comments, well, hey, I couldn't drink. <laughs> so I would put Gen Z behind us. But if you look at millennials, you'll see that uh, wine consumption post COVID versus pre is up 50%.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So if, in other words, 50% more say I'm not drinking more wine than people who say they're drinking less wine. The majority say things haven't changed, but that's a good, that's a piece of good news. The other thing is visitation of wineries. That went up 2x for millennials. Now, That's not surprising because they were closed in this pre-COVID. They were were still open, but I think a lot of respondents were maybe thinking during COVID. But anyway, that's that's good news, that winery visitation, even though the percents are low, it's more people are saying they're visiting wineries more than they did before COVID than say they're visiting less. In terms of purchasing from wineries, that's up by 2x. Percents are low, but nonetheless... The story here is that all this doom and gloom around wine consumption declining or, you know, stagnant. Uh, I think there's there's some hope in the data that uh, it's not all a bad story. So I, I those, those are some of the highlights. And the occasions, there's, I think there's so much there. It's, it's kind of like you almost have to have that data in front of you. Wine, it just stands out as a home occasion, whether you're just relaxing, having it with dinner an indulgent treat, especially with Gen Z, and to bring to, to dinner. Now, that's not a surprise, but I mean, the fact that it stood out with young people it is something to note.
1: Yeah, I was struck by that. Mm.
2: Low or no calories. <laughs> Again, there we see that's not that important, uh, but if you look at brand perception, you see that non-alcoholic seltzers steal the show. I mean, if, you, if I'm a producer of seltzers, That is my positioning because I have that in spades against other beverages.
0: Definitely. And that's what uh, consumers seemed to think, at least the millennial and Gen Zs that we talked to, seemed to think that uh, low and no calorie or low and no sugar was most important in the hard seltzer category. It was interesting to me that this low calorie, low sugar, healthy those weren't the biggest drivers to purchase. It was more like good flavors, good varieties. And so the low and no calories, it was at least very important to a third of uh, the group. The healthy choices was similarly important to about a third of the group. And then I think, you know, it's It's not the type of driver that maybe it has been purported to be.
1: Yeah, the other thing uh, you and I were talking, Erica, is uh, that the groups didn't think that no alcohol products were good value for money though they might recognize that they have benefits. And it was you that suggested, should we be thinking about formulating no alcohol products or marketing them as indulgences rather than as this thing is going to be good for you, which I thought was a really interesting
0: idea. And somebody should do it, Erica. Yeah, well, it seems, at least from going to, you know, talking to bartenders and so forth that tell me they're seeing an uptick in their zero proof, you know, products, that... People are more and more willing to pay these higher prices for non-alcoholic cocktails. And like I've said, you know, I'm a big fan of non-alcoholic cocktails and really happy to pay a high ticket price, $15 a cocktail, whatever it might be for something that is made with, you know, precision and care, as I like to say. But I think that having something that really strikes on the textural, the taste, the flavor front and feels different and new is an... Area that uh, that any type of producer can lean into.
1: Yeah, and I've got a question for you, Roger. There was a finding in there which, uh, when people in the wine industry read it, is going to give them all heart attack one after the other. Which is more than nineteen percent of Gen Zers said they had no desire ever to try wine. Have you seen these kinds of results in other industries that you've done research on? And how does it pan out? Do people say, what people say at 20 and 23, does it reflect what their behavior is going to be like at 30?
2: Uh, I've not seen that in other studies. And it doesn't surprise me when you see a lot of young people, Gen Zs as well as millennials, either abstaining from alcohol entirely or reducing the amount they drink. So 19% may not be a bad number. You mean it could be worse? I mean, if it was 40%, I'd be a lot more worried about it. But uh, yeah, on the whole, that that doesn't surprise me a lot. The percentage of young people who drink wine is pretty darn high. And you've got, I think it's two to three times a week, it's about one in about 25%, which I've seen in other studies. And once a week or more often is closer to a third or a little bit more, which I, I also saw doing some online searching. So that, that's not bad. I think just just to continue the answer, I think that probably the most important thing in the wine category is price value.
1: Yeah. I, and I also, I want to come back to this question about self-reporting and, and how much people are accurate about themselves and their own motivations. So I noticed, for example, that more Gen Zers said they liked wine from French regions than any other region. And I, I wondered if that's true, that they do prefer French wine, or if it's that they have heard of more French wines, or if they know that French wines are more sophisticated than other regions.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw that. That's that's the one difference between Millennials and Gen Z in terms of uh, regions. Hard to explain. My takeaway it, the biggest surprise to me was that uh, Italian and French wines were equally popular to U.S. wines. That was a real surprise. Now, personally, I'm going to have a personal spin on this. That's because they're, from price-value standpoint, you get a much, in my opinion, experience, you get a much better wine from Italy and France and Spain than you get in the U.S. I think you have to the extent that you have Gen Z and millennials who are reasonably savvy buyers they see that and so one in one sense it's surprising in another sense maybe it's not if, if if they're involved with the category
1: it sounds like actually i'm wrong they do know about French wine and because I think I think you've got a really good point there I think you, I think you're actually right that French and Italian wine do offer spectacular value for money particularly right now when the
0: US dollar is very strong now let's talk a little bit about beer because this was surprising to me so we saw that uh, for beverages consumed at least two to three times per month uh, Millennials said that they were drinking major beer brands like Budweiser Miller Heineken Coors so 44 percent reported that that they were drinking these at least two times, uh, two to three times a month. And for Gen Z, that was 31%. And then that was in a comparison to craft beer, which was lower. Craft beer was lower than major beer brands at 28% for millennials and 20% for Gen Z. I, for some reason, I felt like craft brands were going to outperform here, but I was wrong.
2: That could be another surprise out of the study. I mean, I looked at it, I said, well, Well, hey, not everybody lives in a metro area with a bunch of craft beer places. So remember, this is across the U.S. There's a lot of people in rural areas, and that to me was a really standout thing is the role of major beer brands with millennials. It's uh, it's a real favorite. It
1: actually makes sense to me. It comes back to what you were saying about natural wines and orange wines. I I know from being an editor of a wine magazine that wine writers want to write about natural wines and orange wines. They absolutely do not want to write about big wine brands, I bet the beer writers are exactly the same, that they've talked up the craft beer. So maybe we think it's more of a movement than maybe it it is across mainstream America.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a reason that these big brands like... The, the Coors and the Millers and the Heinekens and so forth are, you know, the top sellers in the United States. And it's because they have this broad appeal. But, uh, you know, apparently that appeal is, is continuing on with this uh, younger demographic.
1: I think the marketing budgets, I think the fact that they're on the shelf in front of you is really, really key in all of this. So, Roger, final thoughts about the uh, report. What surprised you the most and what's your takeaway
2: from it? I would go back to the implications pages in the report where again I keep getting back to soft drinks. It's probably one of the biggest surprises. And it's not only the fact that it's the it's not that surprising as the most drunk beverage, that doesn't surprise me. But the vers its versatility in different occasions probably is the biggest surprise. The other thing is it has it has major implications of if you really study the data and leverage the occasions and brand perceptions it can be extraordinarily useful in positioning, in my view. So that's, I think, you you always look at research and say, well, all right, you did this nice study and how can you use it? I think there's some real tangible uh, things that that you can hook onto as a marketer. Uh, It's just that you have to look at the category, not just your brand.
0: So thinking about wine, what did you see as some of the barriers to trying and buying wine?
2: There are several. Probably the most uh, significant one is just the price. Um, and the perceived value around that price. We saw that from some of the comments that uh, they tried, they just didn't like it. Well, my friend recommended me and I was really very disappointed with what I tasted. And if you look at the actual purchasing, the sweet spot is under $20. And that's a little bit counter to the premiumization movement within the wine category. Another fact out of the study is 50% have never bought a wine over $50, ever. Two-thirds almost never buy a wine over $30. So you have this conundrum in a sense of of the price barrier, but with few exceptions, you have to spend a little bit more uh, to get get a good wine. It's like the old CPG Maxim trial and repeat.
1: I think this might be another area where the wine industry has made a mistake, which is in the last decade everything has been about premiumization, but sometimes premiumization has simply been inflation and that those good entry level quality wines have actually become quite expensive and so what's left at the sort of the the more value end are not as good at that price as the equivalents were a decade ago.
2: You'll me make one more point, there's a huge knowledge gap that's preventing people from trying beyond price People are just intimidated. I don't know where to start. So any opportunity that a winery has, or anybody in the industry, to educate people about wine in a simple, straightforward way—that's why I think virtual tastings are such a great thing. Or even if, if go to a winery and spend 90 minutes. It's just incremental steps in learning more and demystifying wine and getting people to try. Because if it's if you have a good product, they try it, they will repeat and the rest is history.
1: And on that note, thank you so much, Roger. It is such an extraordinarily impressive report. I spent spent quite a bit of time looking at it. I spent all day Sunday diving into it. And I feel like I still can go back and find new insights. So thank you very much for all your hard work.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Well, that, that's 80 plus pages. So
0: it is it's, it's a very in-depth report. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, Pleasure is mine. I enjoyed working with you guys, and uh, the study was a labor of love.
0: We want to make an announcement. Erica. Yes. So the announcement is that this report is available for purchase. There's so much information. Like we said, it's a 90 page report. We worked with a designer. It's very easy to navigate and understand. And it's available through researchandmarkets.com, one of the world's best market research stores. And
1: I know that after this episode goes out, we're going to be inundated with requests for the report. The study offers a clear action plan to everyone who works in beverages from alcohol brands, to soft drink companies, to regional wine bodies, to importers and distributors. It's for anyone who's looking to understand millennial and Gen Z drinking behavior and to sell more effectively to these younger audiences. From what styles people are drinking at which specific occasions to what motivates them to choose and buy what they do. There are plenty of insights to help marketers and producers with their product development, sales, and advertising. So, Erica. How do
0: people get hold of it? Well, we've made it very easy. We've got a link to the report in the show notes, or you can go to researchandmarkets.com and search for the name of the report. It's Millennials and Gen Z, a comprehensive study of alcohol and non-alcohol beverage purchase and consumption behavior. If you just type in Millennials and Gen Z, it will pop right up. And if you don't want to buy the report, keep your eyes on the beverage trade media in the coming weeks, as we will be doing a lot of media appearances. Yeah,
1: but of course you do want to buy the report. I guarantee you, you do want to buy the report. And please note, this is the first of what we are hoping will be many reports. In fact, if you've got a burning question and you want it answered with serious research, send us an email as we can set the research in motion. It's
0: info at businessofdrinks.com. And here we are at Last Call, the part of the episode where we talk about what we're drinking right now. So, Felicity, what are you drinking?
1: Okay, so after we spoke to Derek Brown last week, he recommended a producer called Jörg Geiger, who lives in the Schwabian Alps in Germany. So I sent off and got a bottle of something called Cuvée Number no. 23. Now, this is a non-alcoholic sparkling cider made from rhubarb and apple juice. And the thing that's really important to know about this part of the world is there's incredibly strong labelling laws so if you label something as rhubarb and apple juice, that's the only thing that's allowed to be in it. It has to be all natural ingredients. So this has a really interesting backstory. The Geiger Cidery and Winery in the Alps has a massive orchard landscape that's pretty much the biggest in Europe. It includes 1.5 million fruit trees, and many of them are old heritage varieties. So it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like a I wouldn't say museum, but it's a living park for preservation of of old things. So that's great. And according to their own website, it's one of the most beautiful orchard sites in Europe. Now, I'm going to believe them about that. Uh, And they said it's got more than 5,000 animal and plant species plus a bird sanctuary. So what's really interesting when you taste it is you can taste that there's nothing artificial in it. It tastes exactly like you would imagine sort of fermented rhubarb and apple. And I also imagine if, if you could ferment and capture the, the smell of apple blossoms, it would it would be like if you converted the taste. So there's quite a lot of residual sweetness to it. So what I did was I added mineral water to it. And it's actually a very refreshing, nice drink. And I could imagine you could do all sorts of interesting things with it. So what about you, Erica? What have you been drinking?
0: So in our episode with Derek, he talked about Shirley, which is S-U-R-E-L-Y, and how the brand was launching a red blend that he was pretty excited Excited about. So I called in a sample and tried it, and I can also attest it delivers. Oh, I'd like to try it. Yeah. So when you crack open this bottle, you know, it has a bit of fizz that dissipates in the glass, and it really is like a wine drinking experience. So on the nose, very similar to a red blend, you've got blackberry and black cherry, then some herbal notes. And then once you are drinking it, you've got these tea-like tannins that kind of balance out any of that fruitiness. It's very well balanced, so much like wine drinking experience. And it pairs really nicely with food. So I had it with a meaty lamb shepherd's pie last night, and I was really impressed by the pairing. It held up to those richer flavors. And I was also curious how long a bottle of this Shirley Red blend would last in my refrigerator. So it's been open now for uh, seven days. And last night, it was still drinking the same as it did a week ago. It kept that prickle of fizz thanks to the screw top and still Tastes fresh and delicious. So, for a non out product, it's definitely the closest approximation I've found to an alcohol containing red wine. So, go, Shirley! Nailed it! Do you know anything about
1: it? Like, is it just red wine or have they put other things in with it as well to, to make up the flavors?
0: Yeah, so there's other ingredients in there. Like we were talking about on a prior episode with proxies, I think what probably the best thing about this category of, of wine alternatives is they're not just doing the strip out. They're doing the additive, right? So they're adding these ingredients to make a more well-rounded sort of product. And, you know, from proxies, which I talked about before, to Shirley, you know, I, there really are some new and compelling products on the market.
1: Hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to when I finally get to try it. Sounds great. All
0: right. That's it for this week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks follow us on apple and spotify or wherever you're listening and tap that notification button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops
1: also please help us spread the word tap those star ratings and share on social it truly helps us get noticed and if there's something that you would like us to cover on the podcast tell us we're at podcast at businessofdrinks.com or contact us on linkedin we want to hear from you and we really do respond to messages see you soon